Welcome to part two of my Dark Souls series review. Today's feature will be on, of course, Dark Souls 2. I would say right off the bat that this is the most fascinating entry of the series, not because it does anything drastically different, but more so for the effect it had on people. The reception for this game is all over the map, some praising it as better than the first and others condemning it for being a terrible entry in the series. My own opinion of this game has evolved from one extreme to the other, and I grapple with saying that of the three Dark Souls games, I think this one is my favorite. This game is a long one, so in order to really cover everything, this will be broken into two parts, which will conclude next week. So I'm not sure if it's clear to you by now, but gin is my favorite alcohol. It's clean, it's easy going down, and you can taste everything needed to make it. Vodka, lavender, juniper berries, fresh bay leaf, green cardamom pods, fennel seeds, allspice, black peppercorn, coriander, rosemary, and lemon peel. Of course, different gins use different ingredients, but these are the standard ones you find every so often. In October of 2019, I was on vacation in the United Kingdom, and while I was in the city of Bath, I happened upon the smallest distillery I'd ever seen. It was the size of a gift shop, and is known as the Bath Botanical Gin Distillery and Herbal Apothecary. When I went inside, I found a small box of tools and ingredients on how to make your own gin. It was eight pounds, which roughly exchanges to $16 Canadian, and one box of this, and a couple bottles of vodka, and 24 to 48 hours later, I had my own gin. This is one of the added benefits of being my favorite alcohol. It's quicker than most alcohols to make. Seeing as how this is my favorite of the Dark Souls series, I think it appropriate that gin be the theme alcohol of this episode. As usual, I will be providing three cocktails to make for this episode, and the next, but instead of providing a history on each of them, I'll just be discussing the history of gin itself. The cocktails for this series are the Autumn Fizz, In the Weeds, and the good old-fashioned Long Island Iced Tea. So let's start off with the first drink before we start diving into the development of this game. The first drink that we'll be making is the Autumn Fizz. I found this one on a website called Booktini, which is a book club blog that offers themed cocktails paired with books that they're reading. A blog after my own heart, it seems. What you'll need for this is two ounces of Alibi Gin, or whatever gin you have, 0.25 ounces of lemon juice, agave nectar or agave syrup, sparkling apple cider, and for garnish, thyme and apple. To make this drink, pour the gin in the shaker, add lemon juice and agave nectar, shake and then pour into a highball glass and top with sparkling cider. Garnish it with fresh thyme and the apple slice, and you're good to go. Now that we have our first drink ready and made, let's dive into Dark Souls 2. Dark Souls was released on March 11, 2014, once again by From Software and published by Bandai Namco. Unlike the first Dark Souls, this one was developed by a different team, with Miyazaki in a consulting role. This game was directed by Tomohiro Shibuya and Yui Tanimura, designed by Naotoshi Zin, composed by Motoi Sakuraba, and produced by Masanori Takeuchi. It currently spans platforms from the previous generation of consoles, where its original release was meant to be, and was updated for the current generation of consoles as well as PC. If you do a quick Google search on the reception of this game, you'll find it has a high rating across various review sites. If you have a look at Steam user reviews, you'll find the reception is consistent as well. But upon release, there was a lot of talk about how the upgrade in difficulty turned a lot of people off of it. Many of the mechanics from the first game were changed and made things more difficult. 
It was even featured in Forbes for having, quote, failed in almost every way, not only to live up to the games that came before it, but to find and establish its own identity, which ends up missing that special something that made the first two games so great, them being Demon Souls and Dark Souls. I have to say that I could not disagree more with this statement, though not without a change in perspective over the years. Upon the game's release, much of the buzz I heard around it did not seem too appealing. It was created by a different team, Miyazaki took a back seat, and it was simply just really difficult to start. I bought it while after the initial release, so it was on sale and I thought, mm, fuck it, why not? This was the original version, not Scholar of the First Sin. I went into it with the confidence that I had played through the first game effectively many times and that nothing could catch me off guard. I went into it with the confidence that I had played through the first game effectively many times and that nothing would catch me off guard. And then you die and half your fucking health bar is gone. This was it. The shattering moment when I realized that I would once again have to prepare to die. I spent most of my first playthrough ripping my hair out in the forest of fallen giants. I turned off the game and hadn't touched it again until 2018. I stayed away from that game for two years and instead played through Bloodborne and Dark Souls 3 to completion, until I finally returned to the game one fall evening sitting in my dorm room. So how was this game developed? Following Miyazaki's promotion from the success of Dark Souls, he began putting his time into creating Bloodborne which is very similar to Dark Souls in style and gameplay, but is entirely its own thing. He didn't want to be directly involved, stating that he didn't want too many sequels. Bandai Namco did not want to wait for him to be done with his new projects, so they went ahead with the development of the sequel in response to the critical success of Dark Souls. The game's development was given to two of From Software's veteran game developers, Tomohiro Shibuya and Yui Tanimura. Though they had plenty of experience, the game itself had a turbulent development history, which can amount to too many voices contributing too many ideas for the game to even be playable. The engine was rebuilt from scratch with the intent to create more realistic visuals and also provide depth to the story, which had also been given a massive overhaul compared to the first product. Initially, the game set out to outdo the original Dark Souls in every way, and they planned to have a massive map with varying environments, more interesting bosses, higher challenge, yet still manageable for players. Everything that made the first game great, the second game strived to make better. This ultimately was more ambitious than could be produced, though. Imagine trying to make a massive game sequel by creating a new engine, making it challenging yet fun, and not receiving hands-on guidance from the original creator. This was the mountain that Dark Souls 2 development had become. Midway through, the game was a total mess, as could be expected. From Software commissioned that development would now be in the hands of Yui Tanamura only, and was essentially told to fix the entire game. The pressure was on for Yui. Instead of starting again, Yui and his team rearranged existing concepts that worked and put them together in a cohesive and playable way. Some characters were reworked in appearance and personality, in order for the game to make sense. Dark Souls 2 was essentially a giant jigsaw puzzle that the development team were under a crunch to solve. Finally, in order to get the game to even run properly, the graphical quality that the new engine had produced had to be turned down. This was a last resort as they wanted the enhanced graphics to complement the story, but unfortunately, sacrifices had to be made. Upon release, it was received well by the public, though not providing the numbers they were expecting during the beginning of development. On a personal note, I find that this game is very polarizing to fans, where some think it's the best in the series and others thinking it's the worst. Hate it or love it, 
You can't deny the sheer tenacity of the development team for pulling this game from the brink of disaster and appreciate the sacrifices of personal time in order to get this game to work. The story of Dark Souls 2, in my opinion, is darker and far more foreboding than the first one. Once again, you are an undead who has traveled far and wide to find an end to the curse on yourself. You were given snippets of memories of a wife and child, possibly, and images of Dren Lake, the new setting that the game takes place. This time around, the main goal is very similar to the first one, which deals with linking the fire to keep the age alive, or letting it die out and see what the future holds. The opening cinematic is beautiful and haunting, where you jump into a giant, violently swirling whirlpool and land in a strange new world. There you journey to a hut occupied by four witches who mock you for trying to end your curse and that it will only end in misery for you, though they know you will continue to pursue it. You are provided with a human effigy at this point, and asked who it looks like. And this is where your character creation begins. Speaking of human effigies, I need to briefly mention something I forgot in the last episode, and that is the use of humanity. Humanity is used to make a person human in the game, changing your appearance and also acts as a way to do PvP or PvE. Human effigies do essentially the same thing, though when you are killed and you lose the effigy, your health bar is cut in half. After leaving the hut, you end up in the safe haven of Majula, where you meet the Firekeeper, the Emerald Herald, who provides you with assistance in your quest and explains the situation of the land. Once again, you are tasked with linking the flame in order to keep humanity from delving into the darkness of the unknown. To do this, you must obtain great souls from the powerful Old Ones and finally seek the King of Drang Lake. Various other characters occupy Majula, such as a blacksmith, a shopkeeper, a talking cat, and a map maker, each with their own quest lines, much like the first game. Instead of having this destiny of becoming the chosen undead like the first game, though, you are a character that goes with the flow. You want to end the curse for yourself, but slowly learn that the only way to do that is to end it for everyone, and that the curse is much more than just a strange affliction. If you've played the first Dark Souls, then you can reasonably know what to expect from this game. You start by creating a class, allocating points into your skills based on how you want to play. Here is where the first differences appear. Vigor raises HP and petrify resistance. Endurance raises HP, stamina, physical defense and poise. Vitality raises HP, equipment load, physical defense, and petrify resistance. Adaptability raises all resistance, agility, poise, and poison damage bonus. Strength, raises HP, attack damage, and guard. Dexterity, raises HP, attack damage, poison and bleed bonus, and physical defense. Intelligence, raises HP, magic, fire, dark bonus damage, and increases casting speed. Raises magic, fire, and dark defense. Faith, raises HP, fire, lightning, dark, bleed bonus damage, and increases casting speed. Raises fire, lightning, dark, and petrify defense. And finally, attunement. Increases the number of attunement slots, raises HP, and casting speed, and agility. These are the areas that you will be allocating your points on your character sheet. Each of these raises HP, and depending on your build, you focus on certain ones in order to maximize your character's efficiency in your playstyle. One of the biggest changes the game doesn't tell you about is the relationship with the agility attribute and the dodge roll. In the first game, rolling was only really tied to your equipment load, so if you wore lighter gear or had high enough strength, your roll was not affected. By contrast, heavier gear made you slower at rolling. In Dark Souls 2, equipment and agility are tied to the roll. Equip load serves the same function, but agility affects the number of iframes your roll has, 
iframes are invincibility frames and serve as a numerical indicator of how successful your dodge roll will be. Basically, how good your dodge roll is is tied to this. Higher adaptability, higher chance not to get hit. This caps out at 70%, so now the focus shifts on making sure you can not only roll quickly, but you have enough iframes that you won't get hit. Next, as mentioned previously, you lose half your health bar when you're in a hollow state. This is only rectified by using a human effigy and becoming human. This is reminiscent of becoming cursed in the first game, where becoming cursed would have your health bar completely and the only way to lift the curse is to use purging stones, only sold by a single vendor, or dropped randomly by certain enemies. The first bit of the game is relatively hard when learning how to deal with this new addition to gameplay, but as you progress you get kind of the hang of it. I found that after a while I'd stocked up on tons of human effigies so that when I died I always had one to use to get full health. Magic is also updated in this game with the use of a new type known as hexes. Hexes are basically dark magic, but can also be used by staffs and chimes. Also, the damage scales based on how low the intelligence or faith your character has. Hexes are unique to Dark Souls 2 and offer a nice change in gameplay, but I never really found myself using magic outside of pyromancy still. Bonfires can now immediately be used as fast travel points as soon as you rest at them, making it easier to maneuver the massive world of Drangleic. The most important item in this game, I would say, is the torch. This is an offhand item that you can get at the start of the game that allows you to traverse dark places and light sconces and various other items. This can be used to solve puzzles, find secrets, and even scare certain enemies who are used to complete darkness. For example, giant spiders that you find later in the game move away from you in fear when the torch is equipped in your offhand. Apart from these additions, gameplay is roughly the same as it was in the first game. You have a series of light and heavy attacks tied to your stamina bar, various weapon types that work good against certain enemy types, you can backstab and parry for maximum damage, but as usual is a gambit not every enemy will fall for. You have various armors and equipment that you can choose from in order to get a specific look or provide certain bonuses to your playstyle. Talking to NPCs is still incredibly important, and the world of Drangleic is filled with them, offering you aid, stories, lore, and goods and services. Covenants return for online play, and the bosses are plentiful. One of the major things about Dark Souls 2 that I found was that the enemies and bosses are mainly knights and soldiers of some kind, each weak to blunt damage for the most part. Early in the game you'll find a Morning Star, which I suggest is your main weapon for the first bit. One boss in particular you will fight a few times as he pursues you relentlessly through the game. This character is aptly named The Pursuer, and he can be fought at various points in the game. Once beaten, he will not return to the area. I want to touch upon one moment with an early boss that I found to be rather sad. As you make your way through the Cathedral of the Blue, you will fight a boss known as the Old Dragon Slayer. This is none other than Ornstein from the first game. In Dark Souls 1, Ornstein was a boss accompanied by Smo, a large knight with a giant hammer. You fought both at the same time, and depending on whom you beat first, determined whose soul you'd get. This was one of the hardest fights in the game and was very memorable for players. Here, he's become his new namesake, an old dragon slayer in rusted armor fighting alone. He was very easy to defeat, and that's where my disappointment lay, as he was such an imposing and memorable part of the first game. I think it was a way of connecting the two worlds of Dark Souls 1 and 2, and also paying homage to the first game, but it also felt like the developers were making a statement about letting old things die. 
That concludes part one of our Dark Souls 2 review. Next week, we'll be looking at part two, Scholar of the First Sin, the DLCs, and making some more drinks. So until then, keep mixing, keep playing, and I will see you then.